Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Down There, a podcast where we have candid conversations about all types of bodies in order to destigmatize talking about what we keep down there. I'm your host, Caitlin, and this is our last episode of 2020. It's hard to believe this endless year is over, but here we are. The whole Down There team is happy to see the back of this garbage year, but we're proud of the work we've done, humbled by the generosity of our guests, and are so grateful for you, dear listener. The feedback we get from all kinds of folks who feel seen and have their experiences reflected back when they listen to this podcast is rewarding and humbling. It keeps us seeking out new stories and new voices for the coming year. You made our 2020s meaningful, so thank you, friends. I hope you are staying safe and healthy out there wherever you are during this very strange holiday season. If you find yourself in struggle right now, you are not alone. Now is a great time to check in on your strong friends, the people in your life who could use a little lift. If you're thinking of someone, send them a little love. Who couldn't use a little love? Including you. I hope you're resting and being kind to yourself. You deserve it. I can't think of a better way to close out this year and welcome the next than with our guest, Peronia Safsade. She's a brilliant theater director, educator, and friend. We talk about her upbringing as a first-generation American, being the only Middle Eastern kid in predominantly white schools, a uniquely defining first period, and how those experiences shaped her relationship to her body and her menstrual cycle. Perone is insightful, her stories are poignant, and I think this is a really fun one. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our conversation. There are two runoff elections happening in Georgia for the U.S. Senate on January 5th that will determine our ability to push for progressive policies for the next four years and beyond. I'm going to tell you about four organizations working to help swing Georgia and the Senate blue this January. Join Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams getting out the vote in Georgia and protecting our elections. Go to fairfight.com to learn, take action, and donate. Support the new Georgia Project, a nonpartisan effort to register and civically engage the new American majority at newgeorgiaproject.org. Black Voters Matter is an organization whose mission is increasing power in marginalized, predominantly Black communities. Effective voting allows a community to determine its own destiny. They also advocate for policies that intersect with race, gender, economic, and other aspects of equity. Go to blackvotersmatterfund.org to learn more. Vote Save America is dedicated to protecting our democracy. Go to votesaveamerica.com to get important updates on how you can take action in Georgia. They'll send you specific actions for you to take, no matter where you live, in the coming weeks to help Georgia win. Together, we can take the gavel out of Mitch McConnell's hands and get to work. The link is in our show notes. Hi, Perone. Welcome to the Down There. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's a joy to see your face. You too. You too, my friend. Why don't we start off with your name, pronouns, and a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to share today. Okay. Uh, My name is Perone Yousafzadeh. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And a little bit about myself. I was born in Iowa City. (laughs) My parents are both from Iran, and they bounced around the U.S., mostly determined by or 
entirely determined by where my father was employed. He's retired now, but he was a pediatric radiologist. And so they were in Philadelphia for a while, and then they were in Corpus Christi, and then they were in Iowa City. And that's where they had my sister and then me. And then we moved to Chicago when I was itty bitty. I think I was like two and a half or three. And I grew up in and around Chicago for the most part. And um, eventually through a bunch of twists and turns now, live in Rochester, New York, on the ancestral land of the Seneca people. And I'm a theater director and an educator, and I work at a regional theater up in very cold upstate New York. So that's the short version. How was that? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, Rochester should be freezing over about now. Yep, sure is. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us about, well, we're here to talk about periods today, in particular, your period story. But I want to start with your family and cultural background. My parents did the best they could with a really confusing situation and just not a lot of support, I realized, you know, looking back as far as coming to the United States and trying to make a new life in a place where they, my dad spoke English fairly well in large part because of his employment. But for my mom, it was really, everything was self-taught, everything was self-discovered. She taught herself to read and write and speak English, magazines and the news and Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and, you know, watching Oprah Winfrey. Like she didn't have the kinds of support systems and networks and stuff that our generation talks about having or needing. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, looking back, I feel like I, and I felt it at the time too, this split between our household and our culture as a family, and then the American culture, whatever that means exactly, that I was like trying to assimilate to. And so my experience was definitely one of kind of a split identity and code switching from a very young age without knowing that it was called code switching, (laughs) figuring out what I could reveal of myself in whatever space I was in and what was safer to withhold, particularly around cultural identity. Our household was fairly traditional in a lot of ways, though my parents are like super liberal now and like voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary. Like, I guess the conservatism, I think for me is less political and more just in terms of um, the kind of patriarchal norms that I grew up with. My dad worked, as I said, my mom was an incredible stay-at-home mom and took care of and maintained a pretty big household all on her own with no help. There were, I think, as a consequence of that structure, a lot of other smaller dynamics that all fed into kind of those patriarchal norms, if that makes sense. I grew up watching like my dad come home from work and hand my mom the wad of cash for that month's groceries and other incidentals, while at the same time going to school knowing that my parents expected me to do well and then go on and do things in my career that would be significant and successful. But I think like sort of how that all filtered into 
sexuality and puberty and all of that stuff was like, because there was such a strong hierarchy of the parents and the kids and like the father and we didn't talk about that stuff. And it sort of everyone knew it was happening, but no one was really discussing it. And again, the support systems were sort of up to the individual, up to me to sort of figure out how to navigate everything because it wasn't something that my parents were going to say like, okay, here's what's up. Your body's changing and here's why. There was, I I think, as a consequence of a lot of these other sorts of forces, be they because of generational difference and cultural difference or whatever, there was a lot of unspoken experience and unspoken emotion around the challenges of growing up. (laughs) You must have been such an inquisitive kid, though. Oh, my God. I was. (laughs) I was. And like, I knew that I knew there were things to say that people weren't saying, you know, like I knew that, you know, we, we had like some form of sex ed in school and I remember a teacher dunking a tampon into a cup of water to show everyone how it expanded and stuff. But in terms of like fully understanding everything that was going on with my body, there was no, even back then, as as much as there was all of this kind of like patriarchal conservatism in my household, there was also, it's not that American culture was that liberated or transparent around talking about like puberty. There was still plenty of puritanical nonsense around me. And so, yeah, I had tons of questions all the time. Somehow I knew not to ask my parents the questions. Like I knew that they weren't going to answer them and that both, both that they weren't going to answer them and also that the question would embarrass them. But I remember watching TV and seeing these commercials for like bladder control issues, like Depends and stuff, and noticing that that you know they refer to the bladder and they would refer to the issue at hand in those commercials more explicitly, and that then mm-hmm. there were these other mysterious commercials for like this other thing that sometimes happened. I was like, well, these aren't the bladder commercials because like a of all like the product looks different, right? Like the shape of it is different. And B, they're not referring to a bladder. So this has to be for something else, right? And I was like watching these commercials like a detective trying to figure out and decode what are they talking about? And this preceded even the breakdown of it all in school, the tampon and the water. You know, I was from a very young age, I was like, something's going on. Something happens regularly, it seems, to a woman's body. And I don't know what it is. And no one in my family will talk to me about it, but I'm going to like keep researching. <laughs> like keep, I'm going to keep investigating this on my own. And of course this was like pre-internet, pre just being able to Google something. So I'd watch television shows. I'd watch these commercials. I'd read, you know, Judy Bloom books, like anything I could to sort of get my mind around what on earth I had to prepare for and expect. How did you eventually learn what happens to our bodies? I, you know, there was, there was like some brief, totally unsatisfactory conversation in elementary school with the tampon in the water. And then we got copies of changing bodies, changing lives at some point, And I poured over that book. 
my sister, I remember, was I was hanging out in her room with her. She had a brown paper bag on her bed. And I said, what's in there? Very inquisitive, as you said. And she said, none of your business. <laughs> Which is code for, I want to know what's in that bag. Yeah. And, but, you know, when my sister said, none of your business, I was like, oh, okay. Because, you know, I didn't want to press it because then I might get kicked out of her room. And I really wanted to hang out with her. And so after she said that, and I just sort of withdrew a little bit, gave up. She said, actually, it's time that you know, sit down. And she like had me sit down on the bed next to her and she explained the whole thing. Finally, in great detail, I was horrified. I was like, that's what it is? Oh no, that sounds terrible. And I, and I was like, is there any way for it to start just when you want to have a kid? And you know, I was asking like, is there an on off switch? Can you just like pause this thing? Like until it actually is something relevant to what you want in your life. And she was like, no, that's not how it works. You know? And I was like full of dread. And I was like, I hope I never get mine. <laughs> you know, I just like the idea of being like, Oh, this is beautiful because this means you can have a child to young me. I was like, that sounds disgusting. I don't want anything to do with that. And you know, all of the secrecy around it, I think the lack of conversation around it, I think kind of upped the gross factor for me when I did finally know what it was. And the fact that, you know, it's like all of my sister's products were concealed in these paper bags. Like I never, you know, I walked into my parents bathroom and stuff and like never saw a pad or a I think all of that in some total made me feel like oh this is something kind of gross and something you shouldn't talk about really and that my sister was doing something almost clandestine in sitting me down on her bed and closing the door and explaining all of this to me even though I'm sure in retrospect that because my mom didn't feel capable of having those conversations. I'm sure it was a relief to her that my sister took care of it. My sister told me that when she was really, when she was in elementary school, I think she was like in second grade and she was having questions about how babies are made. I think my mom had delegated that to her teacher. And I think they just handed my sister a book. We didn't have those like heart to heart, sit down things with our parents about any of that stuff, about periods, about sex, about anything. It was, I was lucky that I got it from a family member. How old were you when you got this explained to you? And how old was your sister? Do you remember? I think maybe I was like 12 and she was 16, something like that. I didn't get my period until I was 14. So it was well before that. When you did get your period for the first time, what was that like? Oh God, it was the worst day. I think it was a Saturday. I think it was the summer. It was the afternoon. I was watching television or something and then popped into the bathroom because I had to pee and saw some like pale spots on my underwear, some pale pinkish spots. And I, even though, you know, my sister had explained it to me and by that point I had had the talk I didn't really put two and two together that that's what was happening. (laughs) And instead I like finished peeing and went upstairs and my mom was in the kitchen and I said, mom, I'm hemorrhaging. We need to go to the hospital, (laughs) which is how you know that I was a doctor's daughter because I was 14 and I knew 
what hemorrhaging was. And she was like, what do you mean? And I told her, I was like, there's blood in my underwear. And she was, and she said, you know, that's your period. And I was like, oh no, it's that thing. I kind of blocked it out as like the explanation of what was actually going on. So I think we went upstairs and she got me a pad or something from either her stash or my sister's stash and then commenced the rules. There were new rules. Mm. I would often help my mom fold laundry on Sundays. I really loved folding laundry for some reason. <laughs> and I, I had noticed, you know, that when we would fold laundry, my dad and my brother's underwear would be in the laundry, but my sister's and my mom's were not. Um, but mine was. This was the moment where she told me that because I now had my period, I had to hand wash my underwear in perpetuity and never again put my underwear in the wash. And I was, and I said, like, if I make a mess, like if I have an accident, you mean? And she was like, no, regardless, because I was now unclean, essentially. And so she told me this on the day that I got my period, explained what she and my sister did and how they like wash their underwear in the shower. You know, it's the first thing they did when they got in the shower and that I had to do that now too. And I was just like, that sounds like a pain in the ass. Like that just sounds so annoying to have to hand wash your underwear every single day. And she was just like, that's what we do now. That's the rule. And then she congratulated me that this meant that I was healthy to have a baby, inshallah, one day, like have a, you know, I'll have a healthy, multiple healthy babies, which was not in any way exciting to me and no consolation for the fact that I now had to wash my underwear in the shower. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's a lot for a 14-year-old. Yeah, and I just didn't understand it in relationship to like my brother and my dad's underwear, quite frankly, which was like kind of gross and like a little gnarly, you know what I mean? (laughs) I was like, why don't they have to wash their underwear in the shower? Like, you know, I was like, we're dealing with like these like skid marks over here. And like, you know, you're telling me I have to wash perfectly clean underwear by myself. It's like all of these things just compounded this feeling of, oh, this is gross. Periods are gross. And you're gross now and your underwear is gross now. My underwear was in quarantine, you know, and everything had Mm. to be sort of an isolation of, yeah, it was a lot. And then that was the end of it. It was just like, here's a pad, change your underwear, here are the new rules. And I think she was like, I'll wash this pair, like the one that I thought I'd hemorrhaged into. Like she was like, I'll wash this pair, but then the rest of them are up to you. Like she gave me a gimme, you know, I got a coupon or something. But then... (laughs) That was the end of the welcome to womanhood moment. Why did you have to wash your underwear separate? This is part of the confusion that I felt because I, Mm. you know, it is not uncommon in more conservative or orthodox Jewish households that the period is viewed in this way. But I had gone to a reform synagogue and I'd had my bat mitzvah at a reform synagogue with a female rabbi and receptacles in the bathroom for your sanitary napkins and your tampons and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And after I had my bat mitzvah, my parents started going to this Orthodox synagogue nearby, which was very strange, you know, because you really can't imagine two more different synagogues from one another. I mean, really just like the contrast was so sharp. And I remember once going with them, maybe it was for high holiday services. I can't remember. And going to the bathroom and I was on my period and there was no 
no receptacle in the stall for anything. And I told my sister and she was like, oh, you're not supposed to be here. That's why. Like, if you're on your period, you're not supposed to come to the synagogue. The men and women sat separately there. Only men were allowed to touch the Torah because any woman is unclean, right? Whether or not she's on her, Mm. you know, if she's on her period, she shouldn't be at the synagogue. But if she's not on her period, she still gets a period. So like she can't touch the Torah. And so the underwear, wash the underwear in the shower thing, I think was sort of connected to to that kind of idea of, um, not that the washer is a Torah, but like that, (laughs) you know, it's not. Um, Although as as someone who lived in New York for 14 years, I see see a washer dryer as being quite sacred. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) What I I would building, You know, but I think that was sort of the same kind of, mentality of like now you are unclean now anything that touches your vagina is unclean so it can't go in the washer with all the other things that are not unclean even though again see comment about skid marks on my brother and my dad's that's such a physical representation of othering Uh it makes me really sad yeah I mean it was just so lonely my experience of my period was very lonely. And that first day was just depressing. I thought I was hemorrhaging. My mom was like, no, this is your period. And then boom, new rules. And that was it. That was my ushering into womanhood. It was rules. And I'm sure that that's what my mom also experienced. You know, I don't like Mm -hmm. blame her. You know, if I have a daughter, I will do the first day of her period very differently. If she wants to hang out with me, well, We'll do it up. I hope so. You know, she might not. (laughs) She might just be like, I'm going to go out with my friends. You're lame, mom. I'm not going to do a period celebration day with you. But that's how I would want to treat it to be like, hey, welcome to this shit show. It happens. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. And it's also part of your power and kind of awesome, right? Like we bleed for a week and we don't die. That's remarkable, you know? And so I would want to sort of welcome my daughter to that experience with not a bunch of rules, but actually a day of things she loves, a day of things she finds joy in. My mom had no context for doing the first day of your kid's period any other way than the way she did it. But yeah, it was, oh, yeah. It was lonely, it was isolating, and it, and it was stigmatizing, you know? And I still think to this day I'm working through that sort of initial messaging around this is something you keep secret, and this is something unclean, and this is something that makes you disgusting just even just in school like middle school and high school all of the girls you know putting tampons up their sleeves and running to the bathroom that way or taking like your whole backpack Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are plenty of people still doing this but I hope not yeah because I still kind of feel the urge to do that I'm like no no just grab that shit out of your bag and walk away it was not until my 30s like my mid 30s that I started deliberately carrying it in my hand and not trying to conceal it. It wasn't until my thirties when I start until I started, if I needed to ask someone for a tampon, not whispering, why are we acting like we're asking for drugs? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta, a line of blow. No, it's like, we're asking for a pad. Like we're literally asking for some cotton at the end of the day. I still find it so funny that, you know, if I'm not feeling well because of it, it feels like such a bold act to say I have really bad cramps. 
in Mm -hmm. mixed company of men and women, as opposed to just saying, I have a stomach ache, my stomach's upset. And that men are still so shocked if you say like, I'm, it's, it's day two and I'm feeling it, you know, like, or whatever. If you, if you actually name that the reason you're not feeling well is your period, I still think that's a pretty shocking thing to do in some spaces. Oh, yeah. Even in spaces where women or non-men are in charge, I see all the time at work, you know, somebody's having a tough time. You know, you go out on a break, you say hi to someone, see how they're doing. And lo and behold, they're having a really shitty period Mm -hmm. and they don't feel like they can name why they're not feeling okay or why they're having a hard day. If cis men got periods, we would only work three weeks out of the month. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is true and all all you know menstrual products would be free birth control would be free oh yeah there would be parental leave across the board oh man it'd be something there'd be just f- free dispensers of of period products like right next to mailboxes and atm machines <laughs> would be oh that would be so nice wouldn't that be great be so it would great. be Can we talk a little bit about your school experience, which is just so foundational to our adult sexual selves? Mm -hmm. Where did you go to school? What was it like for you? So my school experience alternated between a couple places. So my dad was at the University of Chicago hospitals. And because of his affiliation with the university, one of the benefits of his employment was that his children could attend the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools, which was a, and still is an incredible private school at a discounted rate. My parents decided when we moved to Skokie, when I was like seven or eight, that I should go to school nearby because the commute was, they thought maybe too much for me to handle. So I went to this local public elementary school, Walker School from second through fifth grade, and then went back to the lab schools starting in sixth grade. It really was an incredible education academically. Socially, it was very narrow as far as the representation or lack thereof, the lack of socioeconomic diversity. Yeah, I was like the only Middle Eastern kid in my class. There were such a small number of like Black students that it was definitely that dynamic of where they sat together in the cafeteria, you know, understandably. There were like a couple Asian and South Asian students, but the class was 90%, I would say, 80 to 90% white. I was the new kid in sixth grade, even though I had been in element in like nursery school and kindergarten Mm -hmm. with a few, a few of them, but no one remembers that. No one's like, oh yeah, she was cool in that sandbox, you know? So it was really like starting over in sixth grade. And I showed up with, you know, my weird ass name, wearing my brother and sister's hand-me-downs and very concerned about my academic performance. Worried that I was behind because I hadn't been at the lab school for those, you know, intervening years from second through fifth grade. So I worried that I was, I wasn't going to be able to stay, stay on pace with everyone else, which was not an issue, thankfully, but it was my anxiety. I eventually found my friends, a small group of friends, In my class, I was 
picked on a bit by like popular kids and really just tried to like get through it. My my goal was like, don't make waves, don't catch attention, just get through it. And especially in high school, my only goal was like, get through this and get out. I asked my parents if I could graduate early. I wanted to, I wanted to finish high school early and I could have because of the credits that I had and the level of classes I was taking. I was advanced enough that I could have finished in three years. And of course they reacted like, why do you want to leave us? And I was like, I, you know, and I was like, I, well, A of all, like very few adolescents are like loving their home life, you know, in high school. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, I just was, I, I just wasn't particularly happy at school and knew that things would be different in college and just kind of wanted to get there sooner. They didn't end up saying yes to that, but, um, It was such a conflation of things. There was certainly the fact that I was a later bloomer, for sure, that contributed to some of my self-consciousness and my discomfort and some of the, it gave fodder to the mean girls who wanted to make fun of somebody. The fact that I was like skinny and underdeveloped and really unattractive by high school standards, I guess. And I think also underneath that was something around the otherness of, of race and like of of being a brown kid with a weird name surrounded by Elizabeth's and Rebecca's and, you know, Karen's who had commonality with one another while I didn't. And so it was a, another sort of um, othering space and, and a space where I was like continually trying to assimilate again, not, not to be featured, but just not to make waves. Like a day where I got no negative attention was a great day. So that was my experience. It wasn't great. (laughs) I mean, I don't know that many people were like, I loved high school. I'm like, (laughs) you know. I mean, those those quote unquote popular girls did, right? I mean, I guess, you know, one of them friended me on Facebook recently and I haven't accepted it yet. And I'm not sure if I will, because part of me just wants to message her and be like, do you know how much of a, bitch you were like do you know how difficult you made my life like I don't know it's a pretty remarkable thing to me just the the level of emotional violence that's just kind of baked into that time of life you know and I know my story isn't that unique like everyone everyone has some story around high school being kind of a nightmare in some way shape or form except for maybe the mean girls who are like I loved it And I pity them to some extent if that was like the highlight of their lives, you know, thankfully, like I did, Mm -hmm. I'm glad I didn't peak in high school. I'm glad that like, I've had happier years since it's it just feels like a time of great angst. That's funny. I came into um, a new school from Los Angeles to uh, the Northeast in seventh grade, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a brown kid coming into a predominantly white school, but high school and middle school are so hard, you know, and just even more so if your lunch doesn't look and smell like everybody Ooh. else's, oh. if your skin is a different color, if you have an mm-hmm. accent. Yeah, I was always super anxious when my friends would call if my mom or my dad picked up first, I would always try to get to the phone before they would. I just, I think I was always trying to keep those two parts of my life as separate as possible. Had a lot of anxiety when my parents would come see a play I was in. And then meeting my friends, meeting other parents. 
again, I think a lot of high schoolers are, you know, a lot of middle and high schoolers are embarrassed of their parents in some way, shape or form. I hate that my, that my embarrassment was around their Iranianness because now I look back and I think, wow, my mom learned all of that herself. How incredible, what a rock star. And as a kid, I was just obsessed with the fact that like she had an accent and none of my friend's moms had an accent. And that that was something I was afraid I would get picked on for, which is incredibly selfish and self-absorbed. And again, like about where a teenager's head is at. But yeah, now, of course, I have like a completely different relationship to that and a very different relationship to my Iranianness. You know, it's not something that I'm trying to like hide or hope no one notices. And that was definitely my MO back then. And it sort of carried into all of this like, stuff around like puberty and sexuality and periods and whatnot because like none of my friends had to like wash their underwear in the shower and plenty of girls used tampons and I eventually started but it was met with some resistance because my mom thought that that meant I'd be losing my virginity to a tampon and I had to (laughs) I told her that that wasn't how it worked and um really just ended that conversation by saying it's not a penis. And because I said the word penis, she like walked out of the room, which is how I learned that if I just said the word penis or vagina, it would end any conversation. Um, uh, (laughs) That does seem useful. It was. It was handy. I think the other piece of that was around, you know, not that anyone was fully like liberated in their period or puberty or whatever, but just that like I had a few more shrouds of secrecy around what was happening and that there were girls who I would listen to talk a little bit more about their periods with each other, who were using tampons, who were exchanging tampons, like sharing them and whatever with each other if anyone was like sort of out that day and also talking about their sexual experiences being in the closet in the home economics room with some boy and what happened in there with him. That was like nowhere near on my radar of anything that I was like going to do. I was so not in any way emotionally ready for anything. And it's not that there were opportunities because, you know, as I said, woefully unattractive, no one wanted to date me. So it was like not on the table. But, you know, I definitely kind of felt this other kind of split. Oh, these like white girls are doing stuff and just seemed more in their bodies. And many of them matured very rapidly, whereas I was like still kind of scrawny. And yeah, it sort of felt like we were in different worlds from one another. Well, you're absolutely gorgeous now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you are. Oh, God. I mean, I remembered, too, like, I got hips but no breasts. I was like, where did all of these girls get tits? What are they drinking? <laughs> I had, like, modest boobs uh, but no hips and no butt. And so I was just, like, a, and I was very, very skinny. So I was just, like, a stick with, like, a couple little mounds. I was shopping at the Limited 2 while these girls were shopping at, like, Banana Republic. You know, they were wearing, like, what adult women wore. And I was wearing what kids Mm. wore. And I was wearing hand-me-downs and overalls and, like, oversized button-up shirts and old shirts of my brothers even. Like, stuff that I was like, oh, this is soft. I want to wear this because it's comfortable. And I wasn't like, is this going to show off my, you know, my body? I didn't feel like I had a body to show off. I felt like I had a body to hide. And that was really like my MO. Don't try to get any attention. Blend in with the walls. Do your work. You know, get academic attention. That was what I wanted. To be known as like a force 
because of my brain, because of my smarts. That was all I was after. And from the neck down, I just didn't want to exist, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I was just like, just neck up. Everything, everything good from the neck up. But like for the neck down, just like pretend I'm not even here. Oh, I can so relate to that. Oh, particularly middle school. Oh, God. I wanted to mention something that you said a couple of times in our last conversation. When you were talking about white girls in your school being able to speak about their periods and their what sex lives they had, you first called them American (laughs) girls. Yeah. And then pulled it back. I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Um, God, that's such a smart observation and probably what I will take to therapy this week. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, no, it's no, that's good. I, well, I guess I mean, in the sense that like, I view myself as being Iranian American. And mm. as a kid, I think I thought I was Iranian with American aspirations or something. <laughs> like I, you know, like I was, you, I never had the option on the sheet when they'd ask you to like put your race like I was always other you know sometimes teachers would say oh you should just say Caucasian and I was like that doesn't seem right actually I definitely saw that there was a divide because they had been born in the U.S. and their parents had been born in the U.S. and maybe even their grandparents had been born in the U.S. and I was the first generation in my family to have been born in the United States all of this sort of like signifiers of difference were very clear in terms of my skin tone versus their skin tone and my name versus their name and my lunch packed with food my mother had cooked versus like their lunchable or their Mm. turkey sandwich that like did not catch any attention. (laughs) Whereas like the food that my mother put in my lunch, you know, I would beg her for like a basic turkey sandwich. My mom is such an incredible cook. And right now I would give anything to be eating her cooking every day. But as a kid, I was like, oh my God, if she puts this smelly, albeit delicious, Iranian food in my lunch for one more day like I'm just never gonna eat again because I was so mortified of the attention that it would catch from other from other kids and the it had strong aromas because it it wasn't a tasteless lunchable <laughs> you know it was because like, it had which are terrible yeah, which are terrible like it, it had flavor um I saw them as being American and saw myself as being less American or something like I at least knew I had a hyphenate identity or something, whereas they could just be white. <laughs> they could just be Ameri- like white Americans. And no one was going to question them for it or pick on them for it. If someone else was going to get picked on, it wasn't going to be for their lunch. It wasn't going to be for their their name. There were a couple other kids like in elementary school and high and like middle and high school who also had immigrant parents, like just a couple. And I always felt Mm. like this very strong bond, not also middle Eastern, but just that experience of having immigrant parents. Like I always felt a very strong kinship with those other kids because I knew they were going through what I was going through. How do you feel about being Iranian American now? I still feel like I'm trying to, make that hyphen more porous, (laughs) I guess, between Iranian and American. Because I grew up with such a split of like, at school, I was trying to assimilate. At school, I was just trying to like blend in and like be as much of a white girl with a turkey sandwich as humanly possible. And at home, I was like, 
with my parents and my brother and sister, and there was no assimilation to do. And the fact that also there was there were 25 miles between my parents' house and my high school really, I think, highlighted mm. that. I felt it even geographically. <laughs> I think now and in my work too as an artist and and just and in my being as a human, I'm just trying to bring all of that to my sense of self all the time, as opposed to feeling like I have to switch channels dependent on where Mm -hmm. I am, which still happens to some extent. And like, I won't pretend that it isn't particularly liberating and healing to like, I've been in some artistic spaces with like all Iranian Americans. And that is like, one of the most like incredible magical feelings to be making the art that I love with people who all share that lived experience and where there's nuance and difference between us inside of that sort of umbrella lived experience. Mm. But, you know, I'm all, I'm also now at a point where like, I will say inshallah to a room full of white people. Do it. You know, like I'm also just trying to normalize anti-code switching. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Like to be like, I'm not going to mute or like dim my Iranian shine for you. Like if you freak out because I say inshallah, because that contains the word Allah. And then you think like, whatever is going to happen. Like, I'm just going to show you that like, that's not a scary word. And that like, you know, you watch too much Homeland or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> but like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to mute myself and like my full cultural expression for the sake of white comfort anymore. So I guess now I feel a, a kind of a pride in being Iranian American and a love for being Iranian American that's also kind of politically defiant in some ways. Like I, I think that this trend, this experience resonates with a lot of people who have been oppressed or marginalized or excluded to radiate joy in one's identity as a political act or as an act of resistance because Mm. it's showing the dominant culture that they're not going to suppress you any further. And so I think that I'm sort of in that place now of sincere joy and pride as well as a, a sense of defiance in spaces where middle school or high school prone would have just tried to blend in, right? And now I'm like, I'm not going to blend in. I'm going to stand out. If I'm the only one in the room, I actually want it to be clear that I'm the only one in the room so that you ask yourself, what do we do to make sure she's not the only one in the room going further? Yeah. So I think that's where I am now at a place of greater peace with, with that split. And I think now I'm trying to sort of dismantle and rewire those initial instincts towards self-erasure towards something more liberating it's been a journey you know all i'll say is that it's been it's been a journey it's taken a long time it'll be a good sign if five years from now i look back on this version of me and say like oh wow how far you've come i wanted to ask you when you started owning your body looking at your body looking at your vagina Mm -hmm. being okay and then hopefully beyond okay That's a work in progress. As I said, like middle and high school was like a neck up existence, right? You know, I'm just Mm -hmm. sort of trying to like forget about (laughs) and ignore everything else from the neck down. (laughs) I think there were little moments. I can look back on little moments in like high school when I, 
actually looked at my body for a moment, took a peek under the hood, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, looked at my vagina. It was always very brief and very, uh, it always felt like a little dangerous to actually look at myself. And it was always in fits and starts, you know. I can't say that I had a kind of like a linear progression towards greater body positivity or acceptance that started to change more in college being in now a living space with other young women. You know, I wasn't having my period in my bathroom in my parents' house, like scrubbing my underwear by myself, but like I was, (laughs) you know, these giant shared bathrooms and these like showers and whatnot and having a roommate and like having a bunch of other girls living up down the hall, living on a co-ed floor. The sense of community, I think, started to like break down some of those internal barriers I had towards like my own body and my own self. And then starting to date and starting to like explore sexually more with young men and in some ways having experiences where what was reflected back to me about my body started to make me look at my body differently, which unfortunately like did mean that the male gaze was fairly Mm. powerful in my building of some kind of like body positivity towards myself. Gradually and gradually, you know, that continued to shift. And, but, you know, I would say that like a huge shift has happened in my, in my thirties and uh, and following my divorce and, and having, uh, though now, you know, (laughs) because of the pandemic I'm not exactly like going out on some dates or anything but like having experiences of dating since my marriage ended where in my 30s in a greater place of just self-knowledge and self-acceptance I've been able to look at my body without sort of like blushing and wanting to turn away from it look at my vagina and notice how it's changing not just accept that but embrace it. And maybe that's just something that comes with aging overall. But I mean, especially, you know, we're recording this in the middle of in the middle of a pandemic and thinking about just how fragile life Mm -hmm. is like, what a wonder and miracle it is to age. It's not a privilege everyone gets to enjoy. Yeah. um, To grow older. And I think that's true. Born of that, I've also come to a greater place of accepting and embracing my body and, and my vagina and everything knowing that like, you know, this is the only body I get. So I could either try to ignore it and feel ashamed of it and not take care of it. Or I could embrace this as my, as my one body in all of its imperfections and glory and the wonder that it is to live and to be in a body that's still changing, but it's a process, you know, it's a process. And especially I think like the messaging that I both received and the messages I told myself as a kid, as a young girl and a young woman, like will take a lifetime to unlearn and and in order to relearn something better. Perone, I can't thank you enough for coming on the down there and sharing your story with us. It's a joy to have you and to hear you talk about your life and your period. And I know that others are going to feel the same. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, it's healing for me to talk about it. You know, I think even discussing it with you helps me manifest more of those kinds of ways of being that I aspire to in in my life and towards my own, towards my own down there, you know, so thank you (laughs) for 
my down there thanks you and I thank you. <laughs> wow, y'all. I could listen to Perone all day. You can learn more about Perone's work as a director, writer, and educator at perone.com. That's P-I-R-R-O-N-N-E dot com. Perone is a founding member of Maya Directors, a consulting service for organizations and artists engaging with stories from the Middle East and beyond. Learn more at maiadirectors.com. The links are in our show notes. For a transcript of this and every episode, or to send us an email, visit our website, thedowntherepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at The Down There Podcast to fill your feed with fun down there facts, info about our guests, and much more. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, tap that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, rate us on iTunes, write a review. We love and are grateful for your kind words and all of your stars. Your four-star ratings help more folks find us and create a glorious constellation in our hearts. Please keep telling your friends, your lovers, your pod members, and everyone at your Zoom holiday party. It's awkward already, so go for it, I say. The Down There is produced by myself, Caitlin Smith-Rappaport, and Molly Hennigausen, with logo art by Jean Kim Studio. Music, sound design, and editing by Kate Marvin. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, wash your paws. We'll see you next time on The Down There.